Carl Sagan, the American cosmologist, says this. Consider again that dot, Earth. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being that ever was, lived their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident people, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species has lived here on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. So Earth, this moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam, it's fascinated those of us who call it home for all of history. And the more we discover, the more we are fascinated, and the more it becomes apparent that it is a miracle that this moat of dust doesn't just support life, but seems perfectly and uniquely designed for just that purpose. This is a bit where I did loads and loads of research and then binned half of it, but I spent a very happy few hours trying to get my head around lots of exciting facts, which I shan't bore you with. But um, I did a few things I'll share. You probably know this already. But we've discovered past evidence of water and organic molecules on Mars. Apparently, there's amino acids in nebulae in deep space. And scientists have speculated about the possible existence of life beneath the icy crust of Jupiter's moon Europa, and Saturn's moon Titan. But Earth is still the only place that proper life has ever actually been discovered. It's been called the Goldilocks planet. We know the story of Goldilocks and the three bears. Um, a little girl named Goldilocks who likes everything just right. Her porridge not too hot or too cold. Her bed not too hard or too soft. And on Earth, everything is just right for life to exist. It's warm but not too warm. It has water, but not too much water. Um, in fact, it's the only planet known to have large amounts of liquid water, which is essential for life. Earth's atmosphere, 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 1% of other ingredients is the perfect mix for human life to breathe and to live. Our human atmosphere protects us from incoming meteoroids, most of which break up in our atmosphere before they strike the surface. The best quote of all in my research was on the NASA's website, who so simply and eloquently says this, Earth is the perfect place for life as we know it. That mote of dust suspended a sunbeam. It's a, it's a fast, super-moving spacecraft. Do you know that even as you're sat here this evening, we are flying faster than the fastest human-made object ever built. Apparently, we are moving an incredible 1.3 million miles per hour. And all of that, and all of the amazing things that I've edited out that I could have filled the rest of the time telling you about the amazing things of Earth, 
brings us back to that psalm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it among the waters. Day three, Genesis, verses one. Don't worry, we're coming back to that in a minute. I know I'm reading Genesis. Genesis 1 verse 9 says, And God said, Let the water under the sea be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And so it was. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. So we come, we worship this God who is a creator, who creates the earth. And I struggled with whether we were talking about the whole earth or the dry bits. I suppose if we're following day three, it's the dry bits, isn't it? But he makes the earth the dry bits by appearing them out from the water. There's vegetation, there's seeds, there's everything that we need for life. And so the psalmist says this amazing cry, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This God who reigns over everything that he has created. And so this evening we're going to just walk through this psalm together. Conveniently, I've split it into three sections. Um, And I wanted just to reflect a little bit under each one. And seeing as we've already had Genesis and Psalms, and those of you that know me know I like a bit of the Old Testament, we're going to go for kind of a record-breaking evening, and we're going to have three more Old Testament stories thrown in just for fun. Okay, it'll be fine. So part one the bit that's on the screen at the moment, I've entitled God's Dominion, Creation and Purpose. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. It struck me as I was preparing it that this is actually quite a radical message, not just for us, but for a searching generation. And this is the truth that the gospel proclaims, isn't it? The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas. There is a God. He created this earth and everything in it. And his creation was designed, and it has a plan, and it has a purpose, and that there is a beautifully crafted and created plan for each and every person on this earth each and every part of his creation. Humanity is not here by accident or chance. And our survival isn't perilous. No individual was a mistake because the earth was so perfectly designed to support the life upon it. And it struck me that this passage challenges us to get our eyes and our focus up off the details of our own lives and onto the greater purposes of God. And it made me have a look through some of the other psalms. Psalm 50 in particular, God says this, Every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all that is in it. God doesn't need anything from us. 
because he created, owns, and controls all of the life on earth, which makes the fact that he desires relationship with us all the more impressive and miraculous and humbling. Um, And yet, for generations, people have tried to do better than God, haven't they? They've tried to create things for God. And the first uh, story that I want us to to think about is uh, 1 in 1 Chronicles 17. (laughs) If you're really keen, you can follow all these verses. But let me just tell you what's going on in, in 1 Chronicles 17. I was reading this recently, and it struck me just how spectacularly David gets something wrong, which is quite reassuring, isn't it, when you realize that heroes of of the Old Testament get things wrong. And and when we were thinking about this creation and and God's powerful creative force, I thought this was right to read. So the word of God comes to Nathan the prophet and he then uh, conveys it to David in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And he says, go and tell my servant David that this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt a house in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent to another, from dwelling place to another. Whenever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded, why have you not built me a house? So it's fairly clear that he doesn't want a house built. And then later on in that same chapter, I think this is fairly clear, but I think David maybe missed the plot slightly. So in verse 12 of that same chapter, he says, I declare that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offering to succeed you, one of your own sons. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Isn't that fab? And we read that, and we go, who's that? Sunday school answer. Who's that that he's talking about? You can talk to me, it's okay. Who's he talking about? Jesus. He's saying to David, I don't want a house. Don't build me a house. But let me tell you, one of your offspring, I will raise up and they will build a house. The Lord themselves will build a house through one of your offspring says to David, Jesus, I will be his father, he will be my son, I'll never take my life away. On and on and on. And then David says, aha, he must mean he wants Solomon to build me a temple. And then I kind of, I hadn't, I'd missed that bit a little bit, I think, in my kind of reading of the Old Testament, because, you know, they, they do, they go on and they build a temple and it's very lovely and there's lots of instructions. But right at the beginning, what Nathan's saying to, God, to David is, don't you build it for me because I'm going to do it myself. And it's going to be brilliant. Okay? Um, has anyone seen the ark out in the... I think it's made it to the kind of crash room. Did you see the ark? Yeah? Um, I love that the kids had a go at building an ark. I'm not sure I'd want to risk my life in it, in the floods. Um, when um, uh, one, of, uh, one of our previous churches, somebody, one of the Sunday school teachers, were teaching the children about creation. They tried to get them to make animals out of Play-Doh to show them how hard it is to make animals and to get them to wonder at what a better job God did of making the animals. And I think 
the message from this first bit for me is the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live it. He founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. And all the things I was thinking about and researching that then got edited out of this sermon, the thing that really struck me was that God does a really marvellous job of creating things. He's really very, very good. He creates these marvellous things. And yet, people persist in trying to have a go on their own, don't they? See how much better they can do it on their own. And I wondered if there was maybe a challenge for us in this first part of Psalms that said, are there places in our lives where maybe God's made promises to us where we've built pale imitations of the things? Because even Solomon's temple, in all its amazing glory and all the things that God had planned uh, for that and all the, the things that they did there, it was not the same as what God's plan was in Jesus, was it? When he talked about the kingdom and when he talked about tearing the temple down and rebuilding it, God's plan and purposes were far more glorious than anything we could imagine. And so I guess the first bit of the challenge, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the first bit of the challenge is are there things that we're building up that God is asking or longing for us to dismantle so that he can rebuild it? in incredible glory and splendor. And the second bit, bing, there we go, magic. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And this is the, this is the second bit, this is the second random bit of Old Testament. So uh, if you're feeling speedy, you can turn to 1 Kings. If not, I will read a bit for you. So in 1 Kings 20, There's a great battle going on, as there is often in the Old Testament, battles all over the place. Um, And this particular battle, uh, the king of Israel has been up at the top of the uh, mountains for a while. And the enemy come to this rather interesting conclusion. Let me find it. So the kings of Aram, who were the enemy in this bit, figure out this. They say their gods, this is verse 23 of chapter 20, if you're there, their gods are the gods of the hills, and this is why they're too strong for us. If we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than them. So all the way through the Old Testament, the high places, the hills are the Lord's. So this, we've got in the psalm here, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may go up to this holy place? But there's a really powerful bit here as well, because God says, the Lord says, Because the Armenians think the Lord is the God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. So there's a a song, many of you will know, that he is the God of the valleys just as much as he is the God of the mountains because all of the earth is is the Lord's. God fills the heavens and the earths, we read in Jeremiah 23, verse 24. God is a God of the mountains. He's a God of the valleys. might have to check my theology slightly here, maybe with Tim. In a lot of the stuff that we've been thinking about the seas, 
it's very often in, the, in scripture, and I know this bit's right, that the water refers to difficulties. It refers to opposition and obstacles and evil forces. And often um, when God shows his power over creation or breakthrough, he does so by parting rivers and crossing waters and calming storms and walking on water, I think Marion referred to this morning. And equally, the high places like we've heard, the hills, the mountains and the rocks and the dry land are seen as symbols of God's unshakable promise and protection. So the earth and everything in it. So like, I think I might be stealing what Marion said this morning, Peter took Jesus' hand and stepped out onto the water. Moses trusted God as he took the step onto the dry land and the waters of the Red Sea parted. I feel that we've got a bit of a choice to make. And, and the choice is sort of set out here, the challenge in this part of Psalm 24. We have a choice or a response to make to the God who speaks to the earth and rises it up out of the sea. We can acknowledge this God and seek to get right before him. And in this psalm, who can ascend to this holy place? Who can uh, kind of metaphorically be with this God, although we know he is not just the God of the mountains, he's the God of the valleys, he's the God of the whole earth. But how do we get close to him it's not by climbing a mountain the psalmist says it's by having clean hands and a pure heart and we know that that's impossible for us we know that the things that we've done that have dirtied our hands so to speak and the things that are in our heart and the sin that we carry is too much for us to clean on our own so we know that the one who makes that possible for us is jesus Jesus is seeking us out. He won't force his way in, but he is seeking us out. And again, a lot of the bits that you read in scripture around the earth and creation talk about how God's presence fills the earth, that there's nowhere um, that you can hide. Uh, Jeremiah 23, can a man hide in secret places where I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? There's nowhere that we can go where we can hide from him. But yet I think there are many people that do try and hide from God, try and find a place that they can hide from God, maybe because they don't feel clean or pure. But I think the message in this bit is that this God who created everything, actually, he has made a way. He has made a way for us to be with him. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. And I pray that we would be a generation that seek our God, that seek to see him face to face and know that there's nowhere, maybe the flip of there being nowhere to hide from God is there's nowhere that we can go that's so far that he can't find us. Actually, however far away we are, or however far away we feel, in Jesus there's a way back. And finally, the last little bit of Psalm 24, lift up your heads is the bit I'm looking for. There we go. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. This is looking ahead, isn't it? This is looking ahead, um, follows the pattern of the hymn that we sang earlier, to the return of the king, a new heaven and a new earth. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. This is an arrival. This is the arrival of a king in his sanctuary. Maybe the earth is God's sanctuary. Maybe this is about the could be the return but also it's about right here and right now because God wants to meet us 
right here, right now, in this earth. Creation points us to the glory of God, the wonder and the majesty, the vastness of creation, the whole of the universe, right down to the tiniest detail of the creator, the grounded authority over all. We know that there's a time coming when this earth will pass. And we know that there was all the earthly pain and suffering will be gone. We know that there'll be a new creation where the church will reign with Christ as his bride. I um, just come back from a week at, uh, at a Bible camp in Ashburnham, which apart from being very beautiful, was very overwhelming. You realise that your brain's programmed for one or two sermons a week. And when you start getting four a day and you kind of get to, get to about Wednesday and you have brain overload. Um, and we spent several days looking at the, the prayer of, of Habakkuk. And so this last bit and the video that I'm going to show as I finish is, is stolen. I need to attribute my sources or I've just stolen this bit entirely from one of the speakers there. So Habakkuk prays, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. It's this prayer that God would again be known on the earth, that that in this creation, we would see God's power moving again. In the middle of the prayer of Habakkuk, there is a horrible description of plague and pestilence, which depending on your interpretation, could be the end times or it could just be the chaos of current situation or kind of a a bit of both. But there's this hope, there's this salvation and there's this security that Habakkuk finds from his relationship with God that I think we find knowing who the God of creation is, knowing who created this and knowing who has the plan and the purpose. And Habakkuk says this in chapter 3, verse 16, I wait patiently for the day of calamity. He says this, I will be joyful in God my saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And the video that I'm about to show you is something, again, that they, they showed. And it kind of sums up for me this idea that we have nothing to fear living on this earth because God is our creator. We are part of his plan and his purpose. And if we have come and ask Jesus to give us the clean hands and the pure heart, then we've been welcomed up uh, into God's presence. And there's a safety and there's a security in that. And I think very often we feel our life on this earth is a little bit precarious. Maybe it is in one sense, but in another, I think God has got it completely under control. And so remember this verse that he makes your feet like the feet of a deer and enables you to tread on the heights. And let's just watch this. 